everyone, and welcome to another episode of Equals. This is Nadia. Welcome everyone to Equals. This is Nabil. Look, for the past four seasons on this podcast, we've talked about the rise and the power of the rich, and we've uncovered the neoliberal economic model that they supported. And we've had a fascinating range of episodes, right from the erosion of democracy or the rich getting away from being taxed like the rest of us, or the human impact of neoliberalism on this continent where I am in Africa. But today, we go to how that neoliberal story really started in Chile. That's right, and and not just where it started, but how it progressed and how far this model actually went in that country. And what's extremely exciting now in Chile is this wave of change happening in the country, with people rising up against and thinking about right what comes after neoliberalism and actually voting for that kind of change. So Chileans have now elected their new president, Gabriel Boric, and he's being inaugurated in just a few days' time. My sense is that he represents what many in Chile hope is a new era for their country. Absolutely. He represents so much, right? And, let, you know, just on Boric, right? I see a beard. I see glasses. Good-looking guy. President at 35. <laughs> I see where this is going. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. So so what were you doing when you were 35, Nadia? Okay. I, I was obviously nowhere close to becoming president of a whole nation. But I mean, I think this is really about you, right? I mean, beard, glasses. You're 34, <laughs> turning 35 next year. You haven't even been elected to parliament yet, but I, I sense that you have these these ambitions. This is really about you, isn't it? Let's let I'm just I'm just happy to be on equals, Nadia, right? Seriously, come on. <laughs> but look, look, I, I, I just about the youth part, but it's a key part of this story, isn't it, Nadia? Because it's a youth movement that's injected hope into Chile. Gabriel Boric, who becomes president, has been a key figure in that youth movement, but so has our amazing guest that we have today. That's right. We're speaking with Noam Titelman, and and he comes from the student movement himself. He was a student activist, and he was a spokesperson of the National University Students' Confederation, so a really leading figure there. He was a, a founding member of the board front, the, the Frente Amplio, uh, which is a Chilean political coalition actually established by student activists and, and which the new president is closely connected to as well. Really exciting. And he, currently Noam's doing his PhD at the London School of Economics. We'll speak to Noam. We'll also close our episode speaking to Anna Arindar. She's an expert on inequality in Latin America, where she's from. We'll get her analysis and we'll also ask Anna, are we seeing you know, a wider progressive wave across Latin America? Really looking forward to that. So shall we get to Noam then? Let's do it. Welcome to Equals. It is so good to have you with us. And of course, Chile has been on our minds and it has grabbed the attention of so many people across the world. So looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here and to have the opportunity to discuss this with you. Thanks so much, Noam. So let's get straight into it. We've been witnessing very closely what's been happening in Chile in in the last few years. And my mind goes to this one specific moment, witnessing photos from the protests. And there was this one protester holding up this placard. And on the placard, it said, neoliberalism was born in Chile and it will die in Chile. I'd love, Noam, if you could just take us back in a brief way to 1973, to how neoliberalism was born in Chile. Chile was in many ways the first neoliberal experiment in the world, and many have called it the cradle of neoliberalism. And what happened in 1973 was that in the midst of the Cold War, 
a, a coup against the then uh, President Salvador Allende, the socialist President Salvador Allende, ended the Chilean democratic regime. And the coup was led by the Chilean, Chilean general Augusto Pinochet and was backed by the U.S. And, and the new military dictatorship came into power with a very revolutionary program of its own, a neoliberal revolution, if you want. The two ideological fathers of this Chilean neoliberal revolution were uh, Milton Friedman and Frederick Hayek. Friedman's main influence was carried out uh, through a group of Chilean economists that studied their uh, PhD in Chicago University and came to be known as the Chicago Boys. And they played very important roles in the dictatorship and implemented a program of massive privatization, economic liberalization, and union dismantling. I would say a particularly noticeable uh, process of privatization was the privatization of several social rights, such as health, pensions, and education. And in many ways, Chile pioneered this process that was later replicated across the globe in the late 80s and early 90s. And I would say that one process of privatization, which is still unique, or at least to the extremities implemented in Chile, it is unique, is the privatization of education. So today, most Chileans go to private charter schools. This is uh, private-owned schools that are subsidized by the state that, until very little, could charge copayment, select students, and be owned by for-profit entities. So that's the big influence of Friedman. The second father of the Chilean neoliberal revolution is Hayek. Hayek uh, visited Chile several times and controversially affirmed that he preferred a, quotation here, a liberal dictatorship, that is uh, what he called uh, Pinochet's regime, over a democratic socialist government. And he played a very important role in giving the regime philosophical and political legitimacy, both internally and externally. And Hayek is also very well known for his role in promoting neoliberalism across uh, the globe. One curious episode is that he once spoke to uh, Margaret Thatcher, and he was trying to promote the example of Chile and why it should be replicated uh, in other countries, like in the UK. Even Margaret Thatcher found the process in Chile too much. And in a now famous letter, she replies to Hayek saying, uh, and I'm quoting here, I am sure you will agree that in Britain, with our democratic institutions and need for high degree of consent, some of the measures adopted in Chile are quite unacceptable. So I think that tells a lot on how extreme the situation has been and was in, in Chile. That's incredible because I've read and learned so much about Thatcher growing up, obviously, in Britain. But it's almost as if she's saying that the Chilean neoliberal experiment was so extreme that it couldn't be, couldn't be done through democracy. Yes, I, I agree. And that's a big issue and a, a, a big discussion on the legacy of the dictatorship. Because some have tried to separate the lack of democracy that uh, was pretty obvious in a dictatorship with the economic reforms that were undertaken with that same dictatorship. And I would say that those come hand in hand. So the kind of economic and social reforms and that, that the dictatorship implemented are simply not possible under a democratic regime because democracies, by definition, need to answer to the people, uh, while a dictatorship can simply answer to their uh, uh, prime constituency, which in this case was the army. And it's quite interesting that, for example, the pension reform that was implemented across the country uh, did not include the army. So the army kept their, quote, socialist uh, pension schemes, while the rest of the country was forced to have a privatized uh, pension scheme, which is very telling of this uh, uh, situation of, uh, of a dictatorship that doesn't have to answer to the vast majority of the population.
I want to see, you know, the connection between what was happening under the time of, of the Pinochet dictatorship and what's happening today. You were born under under the Pinochet dictatorship. What do you think was the influence of that period, the, the economic uh, changes that were happening, the political changes that were happening? How does that influence on today's youth-led movement that you have been part of? Yeah, so I would say I'm part of the first generation who has little or no recollection of the dictatorship. So unlike our parents or even our older brothers and sisters in the X generation, uh, millennials in Chile are sometimes called the fearless generation because we never uh, got to live the fear of living under a dictatorship. Uh, I was three years old when the dictatorship ended. Mm. However, my generation re relationship with the dictator's legacy was lived during the democratic transition. So Pinochet's dictatorship ended in a negotiation with the opposition, which meant that several things were left untouched when democracy was restored, starting with Pinochet himself, who was never judged or made to pay for his human rights uh, violation. And in 1990, when he left office, he remained as general-in-chief of the army. And not only that, but several of the reforms and policies instituted by the dictatorship remained entrenched in the Chilean legal system, and most noticeably through the constitution, which was created and implemented by the regime in 1980, which is the same constitution we still have today in, in Chile. Noam, I'd love to talk to you about the winners and the losers of neoliberalism as it manifested in Chile. I mean, obviously one can imagine, you know, many from the elite, but even maybe people more broadly talking about how the economic model in Chile led to a lot of prosperity relatively. And, you know, there was even a significant amount of poverty reduction. What would you say to that? Who was left out of, of that growth? So one thing I think is an undeniable truth is that the period that followed the dictatorship, the 90s and the 2000s, saw an amazing increase in Chile's income and the reduction of poverty. So between 1990 and 2013, Poverty fell by 80% and the disposable income of homes doubled. Nonetheless, income inequality in that period decreased minimally and, and the richest 1% till today concentrates almost 30% of national income. <clears throat> but in a very unequal region like Latin America, Chile's income inequality is actually around average. So it's no wonder that Bloomberg uh, recently uh, called Chile a neoliberal haven because of this reduction of poverty and relative stability, institutional stability. So it is true that compared with other countries with similar GDP per capita, Chile's inequality is actually very high. And as a recent report of the UN Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, the ECLAC, has shown, it has the highest concentration of wealth in the region. So just 9 Chilean billionaires control 14.2% of the wealth. But for the most, and I think it's important to be to be honest with this and to, to, to calibrate the critique to neoliberalism. For the most, uh, Chilean recent economic history has been called a success story. And I think that is why when the massive social protests started to emerge, uh, first as student protests in 2006 and 2011, and then as widespread social revolt in 2019, I mean, several analysts were baffled. And I, I think uh, a lot of them... Uh, being very critical of neoliberalism and of, of uh, Pinochet dictatorship, we're still baffled to understand why so many people went to the street and revolted against uh, this regime. Yeah. 
it's you know it's it's no secret that on this podcast we're very critical of neoliberalism and very critical of inequality but you've just talked about a poverty reduction of 80% in that era that you described yeah you're almost saying it almost sounds like the inequality was worth it so here's where I think the interesting question comes and then the, and the serious critique to neoliberalism comes. I think the Chilean case gives a unique perspective of the problem of neoliberalism in the sense that we need to answer three questions. First, I think the most interesting question is whether is at what cost? What was the cost of this growth? The second is, was it possible to do it in a different way? And the third is what to do with the deficits and blind spot that this form of growth created. And I would say that it's very interesting to summarize this in something that happened during the 2019 social revolt. There was an audio from the first lady sent to her friends, the first lady, uh, the, the, the wife of the Chilean president. And this audio was leaked. And in this audio, she, she said two things. First, that she did not understand where all of these protesters came from and that they seemed to be like, it, it seemed to be like an alien invasion. And she used this word of an alien invasion. And second, she said that it seems that it was going to be uh, necessary for them to share their privileges. This is also her word, to share their privileges. And I think this audio summarizes quite neatly the Chilean paradox, which is that the privatization of every aspect of life, the incorporation of market logic to every interaction, has meant the total destruction of the spaces for basic social cohesion. So, like I mentioned before, in education, this is very noticeable. Although Chile has a relatively good scores for the regions in in, in standardized tests, it also has the second most segregated educational system in the world. So one of the side effects of the charter school system, exacerbated by co-payment and selection, is that schools are perfectly segregated by income levels, not only between the wealthy and the rest. Every economic level has its school and does not mix with anyone marginally better or worse off. So in a society like that, people from other social classes start to look like aliens. And I think that is what is behind some of the problems that neoliberalism has brought or this way of growing uh, economically has brought to Chile. Branko Milanovic described it in a very graphical way uh, during the social revolt. He said, the richest 5% in Chile has an income like the richest 5% in Germany, while the poorest 5% has an income like the poorest 5% in Mongolia. Mm. So two or several countries, live within the same country with little or no interaction between them. This is because that income inequality is reproduced or even exacerbated in every aspect of life, education, health, pension, housing. And that is does not come without a price. And for example, uh, according to recent surveys in Chile, 86% of Chileans believe their country is being governed for the powerful and not for the people. And Chile is, is one of the places where people distrust most their, uh, of their authorities in Latin America, even though it has a higher GDP. Well, and is that the question that people were asking on the streets, that there must be another way? I mean, you, you said many wondered why people were taking to the streets. And then you described the stratification in society that, that resulted from this neoliberal model. So in some ways, I'm wondering how the movement even came together and, and what sort of sparked the protests? Like, was there a moment that, that led to those protests? And what were the demands of, of the people? Yes, this is very interesting because it was a movement that didn't have any known uh, spokesperson or organization behind it. Even to talk 
of, of precise demands is very hard because this was a very spontaneous mo- movement. And the spark that initiated everything was an increase in the price of, of uh, public transport, a, a relatively minor increase, which followed several comments by ministers on uh, comments that people felt were at least distasteful. So, for example, one minister said that if people were unhappy with the increment in uh, in the tariff of public transport, they could wake up earlier so they could pay less in, in, in the valley hours of public transport, which people felt was very disrespectful and, and and sort of shown a disconnect between the elite and what most people were leaving. And at the same time, once this movement started and, and took to the streets and became a massive movement all around the countries, other things appeared. And I would say that the big slogan of the movement was that it wasn't 30 pesos. 30 pesos was the increase in the public transport fare. And, and the slogan was, it's not 30 pesos, it's 30 years. And more broadly, I would say on the question, was there another way to get that growth? And I think there are other examples of countries who have managed to jump from low income to middle income. And in the region, for example, Uruguay has been pointed out as an example of a country that managed to grow from low income to middle income without sacrificing social services, without having to privatize social services, maintaining an important level of uh, security nets from the state with a lot less inequality of income than Chile, with a lot more trust in government parties and elites. So I do believe that there is a different way, and it's it's not that we are all condemned to have a neoliberal path to 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 become a middle income country. It's, it's very interesting how you how you point out there about how it came about and how it didn't really have this kind of leadership to it as well, but. Was there a cohesive set of demands that brought it all together? What was, if we call the collection of the problems neoliberalism, what was a collection of the solutions that you were bringing forward? Yes, I think it's a it's a great question because I wouldn't say that the movement had already developed the solutions. They had a lot, a very developed critique of the elite, and I would say it was above all a anti-elite movement. I wouldn't even be sure if it was a properly anti-neoliberal movement on its very basic origin. It was above all a anti-elite movement, and it was translated in a myriad of different demands, pensions, education, health, but also a strong demand for the Native American uh, people of Chile, a lot of demands in terms of gender equality as well. There was a huge, huge feminist movement behind the, the uprising as well. So I would say there was a collection of in a, a vast myriad of demands, and the big element that unite all of them was a strong critique to the elite. And I think part of the difficulty has, has been to translate that into a proposal for uh, a new uh, social, political and economic regime. I really love how you brought that together there, Noam, because so often we look at the look for the list of the what, right? And but the how of the different movements, including the different marginalized communities coming together is just as important. Now, you've touched on there looking forward now and articulating what comes next. And I want to take us to the newly elected president. While he was a student leader, you were a student leader at the same time as part of that common movement. We're going to get to the policies in a second, but I'm really just dying to know, like, what's he like? I, I, he's he's quite a similar age to us as well. It's not someone you'd automatically <laughs> think would be the president of a country. Just tell us a little bit about Gabriel Boric, please. Yes, yeah, so he's uh, now 36. He was When he was elected, he was 35 years old. I would say he's an unusual leader in the Latin American context, but he's probably unusual in any context. 
he has a very horizontal view of the way power should be distributed. I think that comes from our experience in the student movement, where assemblies uh, were the way that we took decisions and where there was a lot of concern with the voice of every student in that context uh, being heard. I think that's something he brings with him, the importance of social movements in democracy as and the importance of respecting the autonomy of those social movements. And on a more uh, personal note, I guess, he's a very well-read person. He enjoys poetry. I think he always had a poet's streak to him. He, I think he, in a different life, he might have ended up being a poet, but he ended up being a politician. It's a very Chilean thing. Uh, we produce poets like Brazilians produce football players. <laughs> we even have two two poets that have won the Nobel Literature Prize, Gabriela Mistral and Pablo Neruda. So I would say poetry has always had a very important role in Chilean society. Um, he's uh, he's also known because he's uh, he enjoys good food. He's been known to eat and read in in several uh, famous restaurants in the country. He's a very f- a close and familiar person. People feel uh, him to be a, a very horizontal and close person, which I think is something that people were demanding, a, a leader that is more like them and is more open to, to listen to, to, to others. He's also very known for, for combining very strongly held beliefs with a very open, a, a lot of openness to dialogue. He always repeats a phrase by Camus that um, doubt should follow conviction like a shadow. I think he has lived his life in that sense. He's a, he's a very reflexive leader who is open to recognize when he makes mistakes. So I think he's a very interesting character beyond the political side of him. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I think it also has become sort of, uh, he's, he's sort of enjoying an international honeymoon right now <laughs> with a lot of interest around the world on, on this uh, tattooed and bearded uh, 36-year-old uh, president. Definitely. We're all uh, following closely and looking forward to seeing what he brings in, in his term. So, I mean, what would what would be your advice to Boric? What do you think he needs to do in his first year or, or in his term to fight inequality? I think at this point, there is a really large consensus in Chile that we need a new social contract. And part of it has to do with the Boric governments, but also there is currently a constitutional process. We are writing a new constitution in a constitutional assembly, which is very interesting because unlike Congress and, uh, and the traditional political elites in our, in our country, this uh, assembly includes several social uh, activists. It was uh, designed to have parity in gender terms. It has uh, reserved seats for First Nations. So it's a really incredible space showing the diversity of the, of the country. And I think Boric's main challenge is going to uh, be leading the process or accompanying uh, the, the process in terms of, of forming this new social contract in the way that is, I think is natural to him, which is by forming and creating a lot of social dialogue. I want to ask a question here about reality. You know, neoliberals, those who have benefited, they will have reason to want to fight back, to resist. How can the project of equality and let's say the project of hope, how can that be safeguarded from elite power? One of the things that Boric needs to do is to combine a, a hope for change with also a promise of a new order, of a new tranquility. I, I, there's a nice quote by Inyo Rejon, who says something like that sometimes the most revolutionary thing that a municipality can do is to pick up garbage on time. 
that that also is sometimes a revolution. And I think to bear in mind that together with big changes and with transformation of society, we need to show people that there is a way to live a, 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 a relatively peaceful and calm life. And I think that's also going to be a massive challenge to Boric, because like you say, there will be some on the other side who will try to, to say that that is not possible and that there is only order by maintaining everything the way it is. And we need to be able to show that there is a different order, that you can change things and at the same time promise a peaceful life for, for people. We know you're in London now doing your PhD and doing a lot of important thinking. Is part of you checking the next flight to Santiago, you know, waiting to go back and, and join in, in continuing that project? <laughs> a little bit. I, I, I definitely am. I feel part of this generation that has come into power, even though I'm so far away. And uh, I hope at one point I manage to pick up that plane and actually be there and, and help more substantively. But for now, I'm I'm just so happy to see what is happening in my country in this the last year that uh, I feel that my voice is, is well represented by those who are re already there. That's very nice to hear, Noam. And look, we talked about earlier in this interview about how those students who went to Chicago shaped the ideas of neoliberalism. There's power in the universities as well. You mean you helped create this movement. <laughs> You're doing some serious thinking to shape the future of Chile. So we, we express our solidarity with you and our solidarity with the people of Chile for, for, for the future that they, they truly deserve. So thank you very much for joining us today. It was a really interesting conversation. Thank you very much. Nadia, that was a really engaging interview. I really enjoyed it. I've got I've got a bunch of scribbles in, in terms of my favorite things that Noam said, but one of the real highlights for me is when he talks about how sometimes the most revolutionary act is to collect the garbage on time. I just love how straightforward and non-ideological that is. It really was, and it was a fantastic interview. I think for me, one of the really sharp moments was when he, he said that Margaret Thatcher herself thought that Chile had gone too far. And for me, that just really blew my mind. Oh, absolutely, Nadia. Having looked into Margaret Thatcher, I, I really was struck by that statement. He also provided us a lot of hope and he spoke about a fearless generation and the role that that fearless generation has played in bringing forward progressive ideas in Chile. Now, speaking of fearless, I'd love now to welcome Anna Arendal from Progressive International onto the podcast. Anna, you're a good friend, you're Argentinian, you've worked in the region for years. It's really wonderful to have you on. Welcome. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be on. I will try not to cringe too much at your intro, Neville, and forgive you because you are my pal. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure to be here. And look, Anna, I know, I know you and Max are, are pretty tight, so you must be a little bit gutted that, that Nadia and I are interviewing you today. <laughs> not at all. You two are my favourite equals presenters. I mean, Mac, Max is definitely my, my favourite equals presenter, but... Oh my God, to you, well, honestly, I'm right here, man. You see what I have to put up with, Anna? <laughs> it's the look. Nadia and Neville show, Neville. Ooh, Max, you hear that? <laughs> Anna, it is it is great to have you on. Um, and I, I'm curious, I mean, you've heard the interview now. What were the highlights for you? Oh, it was such a fascinating interview with Noam. It really, really was. And for me, it just really struck me when he was asking us to think about the costs of the economic growth and poverty reduction that we saw in the 1990s. And it made me think about the slightly longer view of that, you know, like when Pinochet first came in during the really authoritarian years in the 70s and 80s, 
thousands of lives were lost in Chile. There was huge amounts of repression. And for them, you know, that was that was part of the strategy. That was part of what Perry Anderson called making democracy safe for capitalism. So, you know, I, I liked the kind of long view that Noam took that we started off with this period of huge repression to make this a massively neoliberal state. And then that led to this repression, this authoritarianism and this social fragmentation that eventually created this social revolt. Absolutely. I really appreciated that myself. And and Anna, you were a journalist in Latin America during what has been termed the pink tide, right? That sort of wave of left-leaning leaders coming into power in the 2000s um, in the region. And I'm curious, I mean, that was in the 2000s. Today, Latin America is led by a very different type of politicians. And I, I wonder you know, is Chile unique then in what we're seeing? Or, or do you think we could expect to see that kind of wave and those developments happen across the region again? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we already have lots of talk of the pink tide times two this time around, because in recent years, we've seen the reemergence of left wing governments in Latin America, you know, from Mexico to Argentina to more, most recently in Honduras, and then two key elections coming up in the next six months, firstly in Colombia and then in Brazil, where the left-wing candidates are leading in the polls. So it looks like yet again, you know, we're going to have this solid block of left-wing governments in power in Latin America. And what's exciting about that is the potential for progressive policy change. Last time around, there was some really progressive policy introduced that brought down poverty and inequality without those huge costs that Noam was talking about. So what are we going to see this time in terms of progressive policy wins? That's really exciting for the years ahead. And Anna, let's let's go there as well, because this is the most unequal region in the world. And you've talked about progressive uh, governments on the rise. What kind of actual policies could we be seeing implemented in the next few years to reduce inequality? So what's so interesting about this time, Nabil, is we're looking at a post-pandemic recovery period, right, where governments around the world are thinking about how they pay back, you know, all the costs that they incurred during the pandemic. And so it'll be interesting to see the, the choices these governments make. Are they going to try and look for redistributive taxation to pay back by, you know, taxing the wealthiest in society. Um, And we're already seeing some examples of that. Argentina introduced a wealth tax, but it was just a one-off. Petro, who's the left-wing candidate in Colombia, has been talking about the introduction of wealth taxes if he wins. Um, But Lula, who I guess is the key because Brazil is such an important economy in the region and in the world, He's not yet talking about wealth taxes. He's talking more about reintroducing the social protection programs that he put in place, like Bolsa Familia. Um, So, you know, let's see. We we could see, and I hate to borrow this term from Kissinger, but a domino effect of wealth taxes in the region, which, you know, Latin America managed to reduce inequality hugely during the last pink tide. But that wasn't so much down to taxing the wealthy it was because of social programs so let and huge investments in public services so let's see if the you know the taxation policies are introduced this time i hope so that sounds very interesting we know that there's huge momentum worldwide now on the issue of the need for wealth taxes as well you've spoken very eloquently there about the economic policies just to wrap up just a word on can we also expect socially progressive policies as well 
Absolutely. The indications are there. You know, we've seen this hugely inspiring movements towards legalization of abortion in the region. So we saw this, you know, they call it the, the, the green tide in Argentina, where social movements took to the streets demanding legalization of abortion and abortion was legalized there last year. We've recently seen, you know, a first stage in the process of legalization of abortion in Colombia. It's really gathering steam and gathering momentum and social movements across the region are supporting them, each other uh, in, in this step. So now I'd be interested to see whether Colombia and Brazil follow suit. Lula tried to um, introduce the legalization of abortion last time he was in power, but really the tide was against him then. Given the regional uh, momentum for this policy, it would be incredibly uh, positive if Lula was able to push it through this time around. It would be a huge win for women's rights and reproductive rights in, in Brazil. So I think we will continue to see um, a, a positive kind of pro-abortion policies introduced in the region and also policies that will uh, give greater recognition and greater rights to indigenous communities. We're seeing that that is a key mm. part of the constitutional reform that is is being discussed in Chile right now. And hopefully that also will have positive repercussions in other countries in the region too. Absolutely. I hope so. And I mean, it's just so inspiring to see these different movements coming together as well across the region. Anna, it has been such a pleasure. It's always so good to hear your analysis and, and learn from you. Thank you for being with us. The pleasure was mine. Thank you both. And I really appreciate how you can just jump from country to country across the continent and, and provide such a great analysis. So really, thanks for joining us. Thanks. We'll invite Max next time. <laughs> we, we certainly can. And hey, everyone, thanks for joining us on Equals today. Please do leave us a review. Please do share with your friends. We're on Twitter at Equals. Hope. Join us next time.